The Business of Culture, the culture of business, media and technology, markets, foreign affairs, authors. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. The very terrible economic situation is one of the main underlying grievances, both for the young generation, for the various labor and union movements. But then at the same time, it's not something that you hear discussed on the street or very relevant to the protests. There's a large uh, population of these protests that are just saying we're fed up with the entirety of this regime, so we don't care one way or the other if they're going to make a deal or not. The Iranian street is convulsing yet again. And while the mass protests and crackdowns were sparked by the death of a young woman detained by the Islamic Republic's morality police, the month-long movement has exposed new fault lines both across and within class, industry, even degrees of religious observance. Where does this take the restive nation of 88 million? Stay with us. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon & Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salman and Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. The link is FullDRadio.com. Follow on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle FullDRadio. A shout out to our listeners on WVTF, Radio IQ, Virginia's NPR news station. You can message me to carry full disclosure on your air. Joining me from Washington, D.C., Iranians like to call it Washington, D.C., is Negar Mortazavi. She's a journalist and commentator, host prominently of the Iran podcast. You've seen her byline in Foreign Policy and The Independent and The Intercept, and she's been covering these rolling protests in Iran for the better part of a month since Masa Amini was, was bludgeoned and taken into custody and emerged uh, dead. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm all right. You know, I think about this when people accost me as an Iranian-American and someone who was born in Iran and saying, are these unprecedented protests? I think back to 1999 when they were unprecedented. I think back to 2009 and the protests over the elections and the killing of a young woman in the street who died on internet video, bled to death. I think about 2017, 2018. And at what point is it kind of true brinksmanship for this regime? I'm sure you get asked a lot. It is. It's and you know it's difficult to to speculate. Um, we're now hearing from some historians saying right before the 1979 revolution, there were people who didn't imagine a revolution happening. But we all, um, also talked to other historians who are saying no, this that was a moment building. There was a clear foundation and leadership, and it looked very different to what it is today. Anyways. It doesn't have to always look the same, but we've seen these protests and the grievances and the anger build up over the years and decades. And this is just a culmination of that, of four decades of resistance by women against state sanctioned discrimination in law, against state violence in enforcing the law, the mandatory hijab, the various levels of discrimination against women. And essentially saying enough is enough. We're hearing very radical slogans on the street against the entirety of the system, the Islamic Republic, senior leaders. So the demand is very radical by many protesters. But will this lead to a radical change? It's still hard to speculate. 
I see your tweet from September 15th to quote, in Iran, a 22-year-old woman named Masa Amini is in a coma after being violently arrested by the quote, morality police for not wearing proper hijab head covering in Tehran. Her name is trending on Persian Twitter and Instagram and Iranian users are outraged. We've since seen hundreds of people potentially killed, many people taken into custody. You know how this song plays out. The regime does fight back with disproportionate force using live rounds, using pellets. I think looking back at the lesson of the late Shah of Iran in the 1979 revolution is if you blink, the crowd will overwhelm you. That's exactly the playbook of the regime. And because this is a regime that came out of a revolution against the previous one, they also know many of those tactics of the revolutionaries. They have tried to completely disable any form of leadership or dissent inside the country, the civil society, weakened civil society. We we saw the leaders of the 2009 Green Movement essentially be placed on their house arrest for over a decade until today. In 2019, also mass protests across the country. The state crushed it with an iron fist. Hundreds killed on the street. Thousands were arrested. Many of them given very harsh sentences. So the repression and the violence has been brutal and the state has shown willingness and ability to crush this form of dissent. But they're also dealing with a crisis of legitimacy. This is a serious crisis of legitimacy because you may be able to send people back home at every round, but if you don't address the grievances, their demands, it just keeps piling up and piling up. And now we're seeing this intersectionality of all kinds of protests from different communities. Today, we saw lawyers, we're seeing school children, it was university uh, students, teachers unions, laborers, and now oil workers have also joined. So how did it tip over to the critical oil sector, which is obviously the majority of the economy, the majority of Iran's critical exports at a time of inflation and a paucity of hard currency? Well, we have seen unrest among the oil workers in the past. There's a lot of economic, you know, underlying economic grievances, work conditions, um, and just a change in that mm. industry. So we have seen on and off protests by oil, work, oil workers here and there, but now them joining sort of this mass movement, this nationwide um, movement is also very significant because specifically historians point to the 1979 revolution where also the oil strikes played a very important role, a key role in the, in the success of the revolution. It's difficult because today the state relies less on the oil sector than it did the previous uh, regime did in 1979. So it's difficult to say right now. I was just uh, talking to an expert who said it also depends on how long they can sustain and how much of an economic blow this will be to the state. But nevertheless, it's a significant first step. I have to pose the question because it gets posed to me all the time. Is Iran capable of some sort of grand bargain? Either exogenously, say the Biden administration makes it an offer it cannot refuse with if you scale back your nuclear ambitions, maybe if you do less nefarious stuff in the region. And then can it similarly turn to its people and say, all right, I'm giving you a choice like the Chinese did after the Tiananmen massacre in 1989. You're not allowed to touch politics, but if you opt for the other route, we'll let you pursue economic self-determination. You can become wealthy in this country. You can travel abroad. You can avail yourself of, of uh, sanctions relief and everything else. Just don't touch the third rail of hijab and politics. Is that even possible with the Islamic Republic? Well, it's difficult to say because the state's response so far to these protests and dissent has been so rigid and so 
uh, stubborn in a way. The political space has closed even further. There's social, cultural restrictions. Now, this, this issue of hijab, this is not really political. The state has turned this into a very political national security issue, but it has to do with day-to-day very non-political women, even some religious women, some hijabi women, there was this hashtag on Instagram, a campaign, hundreds of thousands were posting that I am hijabi, but I oppose the morality police, basically signaling to the state that don't do this in my name. Don't do this in the in my belief. We're hearing from religious scholars now saying this this form of violent enforcement of the hijab is not even within their reading of Islam. It's a very fundamentalist reading that only belongs to the state. And it's a way of control, exerting the control over women's bodies and also a visible symbol of the quote-unquote Islamic Republic that many other Muslim countries from Indonesia to Morocco don't have this form of mandatory hijab and enforcement or violent enforcement by the state. In the case of Masa Amini, lethal violence eventually led to her death in custody. So it's difficult to see what the turning point or a wake-up call. Is this going to be a wake-up call to the state or are they going, going to be stubborn and rigid all the way to the end? But so far, they haven't shown much sign of flexibility. Does it all emanate from the Supreme Leader, Ayatollah Khamenei, who was said to be ill, but he looked rather hail when he made comments about these protests a few days ago. We haven't seen a turnover since the Ayatollah Khomeini died. I believe it was in the late 80s that that, that is the center of gravity. That is the locus of control. Could Is there even room for a less rigid Ayatollah to set forward? Well, there is a strong hardline slash conservative stronghold in the political structure. And obviously, the Supreme Leader Ayatollah Khomeini is the top hardliner in the country himself. There is also a hardline base, even I would argue more hardline or more conservative than him, uh, that keep pushing him and the political structure to that direction. But he sits at the top of it. He is the top hardliner in power with a lot of uh, sway as far as the direction the country goes. And so far, we've only seen stubbornness, calling these protesters rioters and disruptors and foreign agents, saying this issue of hijab is a US-made issue. It's a national security issue. It's a way of going against the regime. But it's not. It's everyday women and girls who see themselves in Masamini, this small town 22-year-old girl who was visiting the capital with her family. The women see themselves in how she was dressed. We have seen images of her in detention and we have some religious women even asking what exactly was wrong with what she was wearing, that she had to die for it or be killed for it. Men, men see their own sisters in Masamini and this violence from the state that could be subjected to their own sister any day. Nagar, talk about the stakes of being out there, being very open, kind of sticking up a middle finger at authorities when it is a surveillance state. They're taking many cues from the Chinese and facial recognition technology. Any metro you step into, uh, you know, just like the, the January 6th insurrectionists were cleaned up in various photos and online amateur investigations of people, can't the regime just go back and look at the faces and arrest people? Is that even possible en masse? Or is this so widespread that they cannot possibly do a wholesale crackdown like they have in the past? Well, the the protests are, are massive in every province across the country, dozens of cities, interestingly, even in religious cities like Qom and Mashhad. But at the same time, I was speaking to, to someone in the country the other day and was telling me a regular protester, not a journalist, not a political activist, just this a regular woman who was present at a protest was filmed 
by the security forces and then later identified and then raid, they raided the person's home at night and arrested them. So we are hearing a lot of these instances of journalists being arrested, political activists being arrested, or getting calls from security forces telling them to tone it down or stop going to protests or stop being active online and threatening them with arrest. And also ordinary protesters either being killed on the street, picked up on the street, or identified from videos and images later and then taken from their homes or place of work. Let me just read from Human Rights Watch's latest report saying they've documented numerous incidents of security forces unlawfully using excessive or lethal force against protesters, shotguns, assault rifles, handguns against protesters, and in some cases, even shooting at them as people were running away, so from behind. What are the nerve centers of power? I was always told that in addition to the oil sector, you have, there's the Kurdish region of the country, there is the kind of the wealthy North Tehran, more secular and everything else. There's the Bazari, the merchant class. What are the lessons to be gleaned from the Islamic revolution and kind of the people who have to be held, made whole right now for this regime not to topple? Well, the oil sector is very significant and key. It's the largest industry in the country, although not the entirety of the economy, but it's a very important and key industry. If we look at back at the 1979 revolution, another thing that historians and the revolutionaries back then mentioned is when the Artish, when the actual army stopped, started putting their uh, rifles down and joining the protesters, or at least stopped shooting at them. That's one thing. Well, right now, it's not only just the army, it's also SEPA, the IRGC, this very powerful force that's sort of a parallel military to the actual military and then we have various labor unions. There's the teachers unions, the lawyers guild, the labor, the bus drivers, all of these various different sectors. There's also some opposition political parties, mostly the reformists or the moderates. The largest reformist party early on put out a statement against not just the mandatory hijab, not just the morality police, but also mandatory hijab as a whole, saying that this, this practice should be stopped by the state. So there's different forces. And then you have the religious leaders, the scholars who are speaking up against this from a religious viewpoint, because the state relies on religion to justify this violence against women. You had, we had a grand Ayatollah, Bayat Zanjani, who's a critic of the government, speaking up. So that gives it a lot of religious authority when it comes to, to going and challenging the state. There's the, and then there's also women, half of the population, women, young girls who are fed up, who are, who are leading this uprising, leading this movement. There's uh, it's front and center with very iconic images, throwing their scarves in the bonfire, dancing on the street, waving schoolgirls, waving their hijab up in the air. And it's just the various intersectional communities joining in. It does, though, seem like it is a leaderless movement for as disparate as it is. And it cuts across class and ethnicity and and uh, municipality and whatnot. I mean, you do hear the expat community and massive protests on Wilshire Boulevard in San Francisco, in New York, in Long Island, in parts of Atlanta, that we support the regime. Jill Biden or Oprah might say something, but it's not like the Shah's son can, you know, is, is looked at as, it's not like the country's baying for the monarchy to return. There isn't a personification of someone who could step up like the Ayatollah Khomeini was in the 1979 revolution. 
And you're right. It's it's a very grassroots, organic, on the ground movement. A lot of spontaneous protests, specifically because a lot of these the leaders inside the country have either been arrested, they're in prison, they're under house arrest, or just under so much pressure, banned from television, banned from media and interviews that they can't really do anything as far as coordinating or calling to protest, which was something that happened in 2009. The Green Movement for a year, to a year, people kept protesting every day initially and then every week at every event every state event there were also counter uh, protests by the protesters basically by the population but this time at this time it's just very grassroots very organic because also the civil society has been very weakened there's a lot of pressure on any anyone who shows any form of leadership and coordination is immediately either shut down or arrested um, handed harsh sentences so it's it's difficult to point to any leaders on the ground, and that also makes it difficult for this to become an organized movement as opposed to these pockets of of dissent. But nevertheless, you know, there have also been um, in history instances of unorganized dissent that led to a very revolutionary outcome. So I don't, again, I don't want to speculate, but yeah. I, I agree with you that it's very grassroots and, in a way, a leaderless movement. Negar, explain something to me. Uh, I love to pass my time. One of my great pastimes, vicariously being able to return to Iran, is going on Instagram and following foodie Instagram. There are all sorts of chefs and people promoting restaurants in Tehran, in Abadan, and other places. Since when was that not susceptible to sanctions? Like Facebook meta, obviously Iranians go on WhatsApp and other things. Is this, is this an area where... You know, Washington looks the other way and Tehran looks the other way because everybody must be on Instagram and WhatsApp? Well, Instagram still is the most popular uh, social network used by Iranians, especially the younger generation, this generation, the, gener the Gen Z who are protesting on the street and leading these protests. And the state had shown some leniency, although they've tried to not block the entire network like they did with Facebook and Twitter back after 2009. So after the Green Movement, Facebook and Twitter was filtered in the country. Instagram was never unsubjected to that blanket filtering or blocking, but they have tried to use different methods of either blocking certain content or certain pages or going after the producers, the various influencers or, or old good content producers that uh, were putting out what they considered controversial, either convincing them or forcing them to, to close it down or to abide by quote unquote the state regulations. So it, there is still a vibrant community of influencers in the country and also outside the country, as you said, food, lifestyle, makeup, all kinds of different personalities. And some of them have joined these protests and are speaking up using the hashtag, putting out very political videos, call to action and all of that show of solidarity, uh, posting news about protests outside the country. But it's also something that the state sees as a threat and that we, uh, let me also point out this general license that the U.S. government also put out. It, it, doesn't, it didn't apply to Instagram. Iranians were able to use Instagram in the past. But U.S. sanctions also, ironically, blocks access by Iranian users and entities to certain software and um, services. Yeah, this, see, this is what I don't yeah. understand. I mean, I know this is a little inside baseball, but these Instagram influencers, there are people that are with millions of followers that are making a living off Instagram ads. 
And mm-hmm. I guess that's an area of sanctions that's a gray area like pistachios and carpets and Instagram influencers. I mean, I, this is not that much of a detour because Instagram has become essential even for direct messaging and video postings and then the likes of which that are rebroadcast by the New York Times and your account and other uh, Iranian-American influencers. Mm-hmm. Well, it's 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 astonishing, yeah, where sanctions are forced and where they're not forced, and I mean how the the trade is actually being done. It's it's also very obscure and, and unclear as far as how it depends on if the person is inside the country, if they're outside, if they're in the U.S., if they're in a country that has sanctions on Iran. But one thing this general license did with the Biden administration that they issued a couple of weeks ago is to open the way for U.S. companies, the tech sector, to provide more services and applications to Iranians that were banned before. And so hoping to essentially get out of the way and and help internet freedom by by not (laughs) creating a hurdle to it and letting these American companies provide some of these services to Iranian protesters and regular users, which weren't available to them before. So now it's a matter of the tech companies, how they want to interpret this general license or this sanctions exemption. We saw Elon Musk talk about providing internet to Iranians through Starlink. It's still unclear how he's going to do that because the device, actual hardware needs to get into Iran or be smuggled. But that was just one small step that the administration took, I think, in the right direction. So John and Jane Q protester, you know, Tehran or Shiraz can still access these things over virtual private network VPN. How How is it done without giving away too many secrets? Because I look at China and I see the Great Firewall as being pretty ironclad. It's these guys specialize in surveillance and software technology and uh, keeping the population's eyes closed to what's exactly going on inside the country and outside. So there's filtering of the internet blocking by the state inside the country, which users use VPN and these proxies to go around. And then there's sanctions outside the country, which the US government basically forces on tech companies to completely ban access to their services from Iran. Those that are as a result of sanctions are actually harder to go around when when the tech company is not offering it to Iranian users, it's very difficult for them to access it. But the, the filtering and the limits from inside the country, the users have actually been more savvy and able of going around them. So they connect to these VPNs that mask sort of your, I'm not a tech expert anyways, but they can mask your IP or they reroute you to other servers outside the country. So basically you go around the filtering and you use these uh, devices to access what the state has quote unquote blocked or filtered. It's difficult. It slows down the internet. It's not always guaranteed, but I've seen from activists and journalists all the way to your ordinary aunt and uncle, all of them having access to some form of VPN on their phones, on their computer, and they just use it to access, be it a cat video on YouTube or very political content on Instagram. Is it apocryphal that the sermons of the Ayatollah Khomeini were circulated over audio cassette in the 70s in Iran, that that's, that was an accelerant to the revolution? It was, it was. The modest video cassette, as they called it back then, it would, his, his sermons would be recorded, his call to action, and the sermons against the Shah would be recorded and then smuggled in the country and then reproduced or re-recorded 
on millions and then be handed uh, around the country in, in a network that the states seem to just be completely unaware of or unaware of its impact and its extent. So the video cassette over the decades has now transformed into Instagram videos, into Telegram channels, and also these uh, messaging apps, even WhatsApp. WhatsApp was limited by the state because that's also the most popular messaging app in the country that's used by protesters to communicate. And it's also used by the general public to send out information about what's going on. And again, for our listeners, WhatsApp and Instagram are owned by Facebook Meta, a United States multinational. I mean, Mark Zuckerberg. These are the fascinating kind of gray areas to me. I guess salutary neglect on both sides where you look the other way. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're talking to Negar Mortazavi. She is host of the Iran podcast. You've seen her byline in Foreign Policy, The Independent, The Intercept has been all over the protests emanating from the, the bludgeoning death of Masa Amini in mid-September. Well, how is the general populace there? How is the street looking at the nuclear negotiations? Because on the one hand, you have a very restive population, very high unemployment, very high inflation, even professionals forced to gig, to take jobs, to moonlight as taxi drivers and everything that do want some relief, that do want the currency to see some recovery, that do want trade to resume, but don't want sucker or relief given to this regime, especially? Sure. So it's a complex uh, issue because, again, the economy, the, the very terrible economic situation is one of the main underlying grievances, both for the young generation, for the various labor and union movements. But then at the same time, it's not something that you hear discussed on the street or very relevant to the protest. There's a large uh, population of these protests that are just saying we're fed up with the entirety of this regime, so we don't care one way or the other if they're going to make a deal or not. And also another issue is when the nuclear deal happened, the expectation or the hope for the economic return of the deal was much higher than what actually came. And then with President, former President Trump pulling the U.S. out of the deal, essentially unraveling it, all of that hope was crushed. So the population is not as, even those who are looking for economic benefits of a deal are not as hopeful and looking up to it as they did or anticipated back in 2015 before the initial deal was made. But at the same time, if a deal can bring economic relief to the population, that's definitely something a lot of Iranians expect and are looking forward to. But U.S. and Western negotiators seem to be laser-focused on nuclear stockpiles. It's not like Islamic Jihad or uh, activities, nefarious activities in Lebanon or Yemen, that they've really compartmentalized. It's one versus the other. They're not talking about this in an omnibus sense that you need to be fair to your people for you to come back into the international commercial community. Sure. That's something that actually the Obama administration started by their realization was that there are so many issues to talk to Iran, uh, so many problems that they wanted to resolve, but it's more effective to take them one by one. And they decided that the priority was to focus on the nuclear program, make sure it remains civilian, it never turns into a weapons program. And so they compartmentalize, as you said, and they focus on that issue. Back then in 2015, there were also parallel negotiations about dual national prisoners in Iran. This time around, it seems to be also one of the issues of concerns of this administration, taking it very seriously and trying to pursue it in parallel, not as part of the actual deal, but in parallel to the deal. 
So it's, but it is, it is one issue that they decided the previous admin, the Obama Biden administration, and now it seems this administration are deciding to first try to get that out of the way and then focus on other issues that even the Europeans are also interested. Iran's regional policy, regional presence, the missile program, and then obviously domestic affairs and human rights violations. Hold that thought. Full disclosure, stay with us. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. The link is fullderadio.com. Please subscribe and suggest the same to your mother, your aunt, your cousins, your chale. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at handle Full D Radio. If you're just joining us, we're talking to Negar Mortazavi. She's host of the Iran Podcast. Her words have been seen in Foreign Policy, The Independent, The Intercept. She's been covering like a hawk the Iran protests since mid-September, since the the bludgeoning death in custody of Masa Amini, the young 20-something who was accused of wearing indiscreet hijab. I do have to ask you in closing, in the in the last you know eight or so minutes we have left with you, very few people realize this. I, I tend to find some inside baseball things out there that Iran actually housed a satellite campus of Harvard Business School as recently as 1977, 1978, the Iran Center for Management Studies. At some point in our history, when we were tied allies with the Shah, that it was looked at as a desirable emerging market. It had a young, restive, educated populace that was really amenable to United States brands and genes. We've heard the tropes about Baywatch on illegal satellite TVs of Johnny Walker Red at these parties in North Tehran of Cosmo Magazine. I also noticed that Goldman Sachs had a paper in 2005 that coined the next 11, some of the most promising emerging markets of this century, which included South Korea, Mexico, Bangladesh, Egypt, Indonesia, Nigeria, Pakistan, the Philippines, Turkey, Vietnam, and bang, Iran. So it seems like something has been left really interrupted since the progression of the 1970s. You would imagine that these two civilizations could get along that there is a mutual cultural respect or a mutual cultural affinity. But the big thing in the way has been Washington and Tehran, the right wing on both sides. It is indeed. One of the, there's a great book on this very issue by a former U.S. diplomat slash hostage at the embassy in Tehran that was taken over by students back in 1979. It's by John Limbert. The book is called Negotiating with Iran, Wrestling the Ghosts of History. And he basically talks about these old ways on both sides in Tehran and Washington, these both um, the anti-Iranian-ness and the anti-Americanness on both sides that have prevented the two from breaking out of this cycle, uh, this vicious cycle of, of enmity and over the years and adding to the grievances of each side. I think one of the main problems when it comes to policy on, on both capitals is that each side has its own long list of grievances from the other side without with a total disregard for what the other side considers. So you talk mm. to the Americans, they tell you about the hostage crisis, the Beirut bombing, Iran's nefarious activities in the region, this and that. You complete disregard for what the U.S. did, that Iran did them wrong. And you talk to the Iranian side, they go back all the way back to the well, 1953 coup. The Iran Air, the shooting down of the Iran airplane by the U.S. Navy in the 1980s, the support of Saddam when he attacked on all of that. They have their own long list and feeling like they have been wronged by the U.S. 
time and over again. And it's just been so difficult to break out of this cycle for both sides. There was a brief moment in the Obama administration, the second term of President Obama, when it was historic, historic negotiations on a nuclear issue and a historic deal. But then it went back sort of to the same cycle of escalation and, and confrontation under President Trump. And so far, it hasn't really changed. Yeah, we haven't seen direct confrontation under this administration, but even a revival of the nuclear deal hasn't yet been possible. I always joke, Nigarjun, that if I got sanctions waiver from both Washington, D.C. and the blessing of the Ayatollah and full protection to go back to Iran, they wouldn't draft me. If you let me open Tehran's first Chipotle, I would win a Nobel Peace Prize. <laughs> I'd become a millionaire. Of course, I'd donate it all to charity and I'd bring two great civilizations together. Anytime I've taken an Iranian relative or an out-of-country person to Chipotle, they just go nuts. That's neither here nor there. But it, we're like so close but so far away, there have been exchanges with wrestlers, with soccer teams, with academics. But throughout all of these administrations since Jimmy Carter, whether Republican, whether Democrat, I even read a story that Ronald Reagan sent a, a, a cake and a Bible to the Ayatollah Khomeini. I mean, how, how is that even possible that this, this mutual distrust and disdain has persisted while the likes of Turkey and Indonesia and other Muslim countries have really kind of lurched westward? Indeed. And, you know, the real losers of this have been the people on both sides. Well, mostly the Iranian people, because obviously the U.S. is a big superpower, the world's largest, strongest economy. They're not losing as much. They're not as deprived from doing trade and engaging with Iranians. But the Iranian people have been the big losers of this, of, of losing uh, economic opportunities, business opportunities, cultural exchanges, sports, you name it. And it, it's actually a very pro-American population, very savvy, tech-savvy, very modern, very hungry. And you talked about the markets. There's this businessman who once told me Iran can be considered the last large untapped market in the world. It's a 70% of the population is under the age of 40. They're very hungry for engagement uh, with the world. So and they've just been thought. in isolation. Why don't, why don't those animal spirits speak to the clerics the way it did to the communists and Chinese? I know, I know that they were decidedly secular and they cracked down and it was brutal and it was bloody, but it's only become even more brutal and, and strong-handed. Why can't they just take the billions and run and take a grand negotiation if there's so much money on the table? I'm talking about the regime in Iran. Mm -hmm. I don't know. You have to ask the regime, but it's, it's just so far, it's been a specific elite within the political structure that have actually benefited from this conversation. They have uh, benefited from the sanctions regime, from from essentially this this industry of uh, circumventing sanctions. It's actually made some people wealthy and rich. People see this very small minority um, class of elite that are actually living the life, getting wealthier, and having comfortable lives. And it they can actually buy their freedom, buy their freedom from mandatory hijab if they drive in their fancy cars, they live in the have parties in their fancy villas, and it's your ordinary working and middle-class woman who has to take the bus, who has to get on the metro like Masa Amini, who gets picked up by the morality police and gets subjected to this type of state violence of enforcement of a law that really has lost its meaning over the years. How do China and Russia play this in the interim, especially if uh, Iran is further estranged from Washington? I have seen that Iran has exported these kamikaze drones to Russia in its crackdown in Ukraine. I have seen that the Chinese helped build the metro. They're sharing surveillance technology. They buy uh, oil on the gray markets. They're kind of no questions asked. 
Well, as Iran has been isolated from the West, especially the U.S., but also Europe, which is close to the U.S., they have shifted more to the East, looking to China as a trade and business partner and looking to Russia sort of as a military supporter. These big powers, they have, they're both veto, they have veto powers at the Security Council, so they support Iran politically in the global stage. Russia supports Iran militarily. They're close allies when it comes to Syria and that theater on the ground. The support for Assad uh, essentially helping him remain in power and survive those those years of revolution and war. And also with China, China has stepped in to take the space of the U.S. and Europe when it comes to trade and business um, in the face of sanctions. And um, it's just something that Iranians are doing more of this shift, especially with the hardliners in power. They're looking more to the East rather than the West. And uh, we even saw that with Iran's position as far as Russia's attack on Ukraine, siding with the Russians. And we see that in their trade and contracts and agreements with the Chinese. Negar Mortazavi, host of the Iran podcast, Bylines and Foreign Policy Independent, The Intercept, really the most essential voice to my mind on Twitter following these protests. Please do. Can you give us your handles, your particulars? Sure. Um, so I'm on Twitter at Negar Mortazavi. I also post all my interviews on my website, negarmortazavi.com. And I'm also on the Iran podcast available on all major podcast platforms. Hanum, thank you so much for finally coming on my show. And you're always welcome. Please, Tashrif Biari. No, no Mozayam, no Tarof. <laughs> always please come back on my show. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Full disclosure, stay with us. That was Negar Mortazavi, host of the Iran podcast. We wanted to close with a flashback to my spring chat with Iran-born author and poet Roya Hakakian, who documented her coming to America experience in the book A Beginner's Guide to America for the Immigrant and the Curious. Joining us from New Haven, author, poet, all-around wordsmithstress, Roya Hakakian, author of Journey from the Land of No. The book that I want to reference today is A Beginner's Guide to America for the Immigrant and the Curious. How are you? I'm great and delighted to be online with you. Full disclosure, I also am an American Jew who came to the United States, albeit in the late 70s. Uh, mm-hmm. Hanum Hakakian came in the <laughs> early 80s. And I'd like to read from the New York Times book review calls A Beginner's Guide to America. A touching account by an Iranian-born poet details her adopted home's quirks. Money that all looks the same, well-stocked markets where the fruit has no smell. It's like Bono says where the streets have no name and yours is <laughs> where the fruit has no smell. So. <laughs> so much so, so much about this about this book struck me and I'm constantly pivoting back to my immigrant experience a lot of it mm-hmm. traumatic and coming here as a very small mm-hmm. kid as a three-year-old in the late 70s mm-hmm. into the mm-hmm. crucible of Miami and I'm struck by your observations having mm-hmm. been an older person and having lived mm-hmm. through the uh, Islamic revolution of the late 70s and mm-hmm having been micromanaged with your attire and everything, Mm -hmm. the terror you Mm -hmm. had coming into the airport and the very banal things in the United States that struck you about your first, you know, hour or two out in the open. Talk to me about it. Well, first of all, I remember, and, you know, people often ask me, how could you remember things so well? Well, because it was such a fundamentally life-changing experience, how could I forget? In some ways, it, it is a second genesis. It's as if life began again after my arrival, after the touchdown. And, and so it was really difficult 
not to remember, not to commit to memory those early encounters. And and I remember the very first thing was that, you know, the airport electric doors swung open <laughs> and and I stepped out and thought, life, landscape has been stretched to limits I've never seen. And it was that, you know, the horizon was vaster, you know, buildings were taller, cars was far bigger than I had ever seen. People were, you know, monumentally large, you know, both, you know, in, in all directions. And and I remember feeling that I had been dwarfed and that, you know, it was really hard to feel that, you know, my dimensions could somehow fit into this uh, new life. And that was my earliest. Your earliest experience. And I, I mean, I, I'm really struck by the, the poetry of your <laughs> recollections in the chapter Upon Arrival in America the Beautiful, if I can quote, mm -hmm. apathy, evil in its own way, is a luxury of freedom. At the voting booth, democracy boils down to a ballot. On ordinary streets, as you see them on the first day, it manifests as indifference. The novelty you are experiencing today is just that. No one watches or cares much about what you do as long as you do not harm anyone. Bask mm -hmm. in the icy calm of this refreshing indifference. Years later, you might yearn for attention, but for now, you want to vanish amid the crowd and find this oblivion comforting. Mm -hmm. I, I kind of want to frame that. I want to tattoo it. Because, <laughs> you know, as 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 writers, it's 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 one as immigrant writers. Later on, we're trying to get attention later in life, and we're very public facing. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. the how do I very egalitarian uh, leveling tendency kind of. Everybody, no matter how wealthy you are, yes, people get stares, but this in direct opposition to constant eyes and gossipy eyes and paramilitary people staring at you in the streets yeah. of post-revolutionary Iran. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you know, um, well, first of all, I'm flattered and delighted that you see the poetry in the prose, and I really wanted to create something really beautiful for several reasons. One, because when I set out to write this book, we were all so angry and we continue to be. And I thought I was not going to fight the anger with more anger. I was going to fight the anger with beauty, that, that my job was to create beauty to help us get to some other place. And the other was that I thought, you know, how could an immigrant pay great tribute mm. to her new inheritance? And I thought part of it had to do with me trying to pay my tribute to language. So those are those are sort of the, you know, the prose, you know, why I chose the prose to be the, the way it is. The other was that I thought, how could we as immigrants bring our perspective to this conversation about America? And I thought it was detrimentally important because... You know, those who are born and raised here cannot possibly see the value and the importance of some of the things we see. And you rightly mention this, this passage in which I say, you know, people just don't give a damn what you look like when you're on the street. And I was told the opposite growing up as a teenage girl in post-revolutionary Iran. I was told that, you know, if I uncovered my hair, uh, that you know, the world would, would end because all men uh, would be so, lose themselves so badly 
that they would be coming after me and I would be endangered. And so the idea that, you know, I could take the scarf off and and walk down the street and not only nothing happened, but nobody cared. Nobody even looked at me. And of course, I knew all that intellectually, but but to experience it was something entirely different. What is it about Persian culture? And I, I can you translate? Is it Chesh to Ha Cheshmi? Um well is that I mean kind of this this gossip conspiratorial culture going back even to literature I know one of the pre-revolutionary comic series was was Daijan Napoleon which is Iran's contribution <laughs> to you know man of men of <laughs> La Mancha and Cervantes and everything but exactly. always conspiracy uh, I, I see it with my mom I hope she's not listening to this but <laughs> conspiracy hatching and this is immodest and everything um right. Do you know what I'm? Do you know what I'm saying? It's it's something that's very peculiar to you know. You and I talk offline about tarof, which is kind of a right. preemptive courtesy, preemptive modesty. There's no way to define it in ten words or less for a radio no. listenership. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. you bring that modesty compounded with the fear and the paranoia that the revolution mm-hmm. kind of by design instilled in, in the Iranian street, and it's such mm-hmm. a striking freedom that yes i can i can take this off and i'm not going to be gawked at in fact i see other women wearing hijab or are shrouded and and they're going by their own way going by taxi cabs mm-hmm. and people with boom boxes and they don't you know nobody pays attention to them either i mean i this is really incredibly fascinating first of all i think you know maybe we are culturally you know genetically designed to be you know, paranoid, as you put it. But I think it is somewhat a product of being, I don't want to call it provincial, but being culturally and ethnically not diverse, right? I mean, it's it's very easy to kind of turn in on yourself when you're surrounded by by people like you, because people who are unlike you, as we experience in the United States, are constantly challenge you to be different, to think differently, to question yourself, to doubt, you know, whether your long, you know, straight hair should be the standard of beauty or whether, you know, the the kinky, you know, dark hair of someone else should be the standard of beauty. You just, I remember I had never met a black person in my life. Can you imagine that? Until... My one of my distant cousins who worked at the embassy of Kenya in Iran invited us to um, to an event at the embassy, and I walked in, and and I saw people I had never even imagined. Wow! Um, you know, so this is all to say that when you are in a you're culturally ethnically uh, secluded then you kind of turn in on yourself and you begin to question things because there is nothing else to challenge you. And I think part of um, what makes us the way we are is because we are not diverse in in Iran. I mean, we're, you know, yes, we have uh, Kurdish people and we have Turks and we have Azeris and we have all sorts of people in, in that way. But we are all part of this common culture that has been around and we have belonged to. We don't have people from other countries coming to us and challenging us and 
making us, forcing us to see ourselves and the world around us in a different way. And I think that probably accounts for some of it. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're talking to author Roya Hakakian. The book is A Beginner's Guide to America for the Immigrant and the Curious. I want to quote from the section on public transportation getting lost. Assimilation, you write, is not a destination. It may be best likened to a marriage. You do not have to assume all the colors of America only to know her deeply, love her despite her flaws, and live alongside her harmoniously. And in that section, you write about being able to breezily answer when asked, where are you from? (laughs) You know, this was a very uh, fraught question for Iranian immigrants in the 1980s because Mm -hmm. Iran was first and foremost associated with the hostage crisis. Mm-hmm. And a, a dreary time. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in the worst case in elementary school, I'd be told, go back to your country or terrorist or go take somebody hostage. But the microaggressive way in the present tense is to ask somebody, no, where are you really from? Where's your accent? Mm-hmm. If you tell someone you're from mm-hmm. Miami, well, it's not sufficient. Mm-hmm. No, where are you really from? Uh, mm-hmm. Tell me about that and it being loaded and something you were were scared of. I mean, there was all sorts of ways that immigrants, you know, if people were open-minded enough, you could say, I'm Persian, like Mazdrabrani says, like the cat, meow, you mm-hmm, know? Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. But others would say, oh, you know, my I'm from the, the, the Middle East, the former Ottoman Empire or something, anything but telling mm-hmm. someone you're from Iran. Right, right. And it's interesting because, as you know, and you just mentioned, a lot of Iranians in the United States introduce themselves as Persian Americans. And I've had this conversation with nieces and nephews who say, I'm Persian American, why don't you you know, why do you introduce yourself as Iranian-American? And I always say because (laughs) I have to face the responsibility of, you know, the current political situation and be able to, you know, speak up on behalf of both parties, you know, both Iranians and Americans and try to bring some insight into what drives our tensions. So yes, you're correct, and and I that that we are reluctant to say we are Iranian Americans, and I assume this is probably the experience for so many other immigrants from countries that are at crosshairs with the United States coming into this country. But you know, there's something I learned, uh, which I wasn't as fully aware of, that in some ways, you know, I used to I used to be afraid of where are you from. Because I always thought I had given myself away, that something about me uh, didn't fit in. Something about me didn't allow me to pass, right, as a fellow ordinary American. I just wanted to pass, like every new immigrant wants, until we pass so much that then we want to go back to who we were and kind of rekindle that life. But then... um, I think one of the really important discoveries I made later on, long after I had already passed and was no longer uh, really interested in passing because I'd done it enough, it was to recognize that we ask each other, where are you from, as a way of uh, making each other's acquaintance, that this is how conversations began. And it wasn't as harmful or dangerous a question as I used to think of it. And of course, later I realized that, you know, Americans who are clearly born and raised in this country ask themselves the same questions, ask each other the same question. You know, I'm from Utah. Where are you from? I'm New Hampshire, you know, and and it's a way of getting acquainted. So 
I think that's another thing we immigrants can bring into the conversation with each other and with others, which is that, you know, certain questions may jar us or alarm us, but perhaps there's room to think that we're just trying to uh, get to know each other, just as we ask, you know, are you married or, you know, do you have children? You were listening to Roya Hakakian, author of A Beginner's Guide to America for the Immigrant and the Curious. Full disclosure, special thanks to my man Claire Morgan at Notterly. We podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts at linkfulldradio.com. Please subscribe, rate, and recommend us. Follow on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. The handle is Full D Radio. And you can catch me on MSNBC and NPR's Here and Now every week. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening and back with you next week. Thank you.